Section 5 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Eminent Painters by Albert Hubbard. Rubens, Part 1. I was admitted to the Duke of Lerma's presence and took part in the embassy. The Duke exhibited great satisfaction at the excellence and number of the pictures, which surely have acquired a certain fair appearance of antiquity by means of my retouching, in spite even of the damage they had undergone. They are held and accepted by the King and Queen as originals, without there being any doubt on their side or assertion on ours, to make them believe them to be such. Letter from Rubens at Madrid to Chiepo, Secretary of the Duke of Mantua. The father of Peter Paul Rubens was a lawyer, a man of varied attainments and marked personality. In statecraft he showed much skill, and by his ability in business management served William the Silent. Prince of Orange, in good stead. But young Rubens had a bad habit of thinking for himself. The habit grew upon him until the whisper was passed from this one to that, that he was becoming decidedly atheistic. Spain held a strong hand upon Antwerp, and the policy of Philip II was to crush opposition in the bud. Jan Rubens had criticized Spanish rule, and given it as his opinion that the Latin race would not always push its domination upon the people of the North. At this time, Spain was so strong that she deemed herself omnipotent and was looking with lustful eyes towards England. Drake and Frobisher and Walter Raleigh were learning their lessons in seafaring. Elizabeth was queen, while up at Warwickshire, a barefoot boy named William Shakespeare was playing in the meadows and romping in the lanes and alleys of Stratford. All this was taking place at the time when Jan Rubens was doing a little thinking on his own account. On reading the history of Europe, Flanders seems to one to have been a battleground from the dawn of history up to the night of June 18, 1815 with a few incidental skirmishes since, for it is difficult to stop short. And it surely was meet that Napoleon should have gone up there to receive his Waterloo and charge his cavalry into a sunken roadway, making a bridge across with a mingled mass of men and horses, upon which site now is a huge mound thrown up by the English, surmounted by a gigantic bronze lion cast from the captured cannon of the French. Napoleon belonged to the Latin race. He pushed his rule north into Flanders, and there his prowess ended. There, at the same place where Spanish rule had been throttled and turned back upon itself. Thus far, and no farther, Jan Rubens was right, but he paid dearly for his prophecy. When William the Silent was away on his many warfaring expeditions, the man who had charge of certain of his affairs was Jan Rubens. Naturally, this brought Rubens into an acquaintanceship with the wife of the silent prince. 
Rubens was a handsome man, ready in speech and of the kind that makes friends easily. And if the wife of the Prince of Orange liked the vivacious Rubens better than the silent warrior, who won his sobriquet, they do say, through density of emotion and lack of ideas, why, who can blame her? But Rubens had a wife of his own, to whom he was fondly attached, and this wife was also the close and trusted friend of the woman whose husband was off to the wars. And yet, when this dense and silent man came back from one of his expeditions, it was only publicly to affront and disgrace his wife, and to cast Jan Rubens into a dungeon. No doubt the prince was jealous of the courtly Rubens, and the Iagos are a numerous tribe. But Othello's limit had been reached. He damned the innocent woman to the lowest pit and visited his wrath on the man. Of course, I know full well that all northern Europe once rang with shrill gossip over the affair, and as usual, the woman was declared the guilty party. Even yet, when topics for scandal in Belgium run short, this all tale is revived and gone over, sides being taken. I've gone over it, too. And although I may be in the minority, just as I possibly am to the guilt of Eve, yet I stand firm on the side of the woman. I give the facts just as they appear, having canvassed the whole subject, possibly a little more than was good for me. Republics may be ungrateful, but the favor of princes is fickle as the east wind. We make a fine hullabaloo nowadays because France or Russia occasionally tries and sentences a man without giving him an opportunity of defense. But in the 16th century, the donjon keeps of hundreds of castles in Europe were filled with prisoners whose offense consisted in being feared or disliked by some whimsical local ruler. Jan Rubens was sent on an official errand to Dillenburg, and arriving there was seized and thrown into prison, without trial or the privilege of communicating with his friends. Months of agonizing search on the part of his wife failed to find him, and the prince only broke the silence long enough to usurp a woman's privilege by telling a lie and declaring he did not know where Rubens was. But I believe he has committed suicide through remorse. The distracted wife made her way alone from prison to prison, and finally, by bribing an official, found her husband was in an underground cell in the fortress at Dillenburg. It was a year before she was allowed to communicate with or see him, but Maria Rubens was a true diplomat, you move a man not by going to him direct, but by finding out who it is that has a rope tied to his foot. She secured the help of the discarded wife of the prince, and these two managed to interest a worthy bishop who brought his influence to bear on Count John of Nassau. This man had jurisdiction of the district in which the fortress where Rubens was confined was located, and he agreed to release the prisoner on parole on condition that a deposit of 6,000 thalers be left with him, and an agreement signed by the prisoner that he would give himself up when requested, and also further that he would acknowledge before witnesses that he was guilty of the charges made against him. 
the latter clause was to justify the Prince of Orange in his actions toward him. Rubens refused to plead guilty, even for the sake of sweet liberty, on account of the smirch to the name of the princess. But on the earnest request of both his wife and the co-respondent, he finally accepted the terms in the same manner that Galilea declared the earth stood still. Rubens got his liberty, was loyal to his parole, but John of Nassau kept the 6,000 thalers for expenses. So much for the honor of princes. But in passing, it is worthy of recall that Jan Rubens pleaded guilty of disloyalty to his wife on request of said wife in order that he might enjoy the society of said wife and cast a cloud on the good name of another woman on said woman's request. So here is a plot for a play, a tale of self-sacrifice and loyalty on the part of two women that puts to shame much small talk we hear from small men concerning the fickleness and selfishness of woman's love. Brief as woman's love, said Hamlet, but then Hamlet was crazy. Jan Rubens died in Cologne, March 18, 1587, and lies buried in the Church of St. Peter. Above the grave is a slab containing this inscription, sacred to the memory of Jan Rubens of Antwerp, who went into voluntary exile and retired with his family to Cologne, where he abode for 19 years with his wife Maria, who was the mother of his seven children. With this, his only wife Maria, he lived happily for 26 years without any quarrel. This monument is erected by said Maria Pipelins Rubens to her sweetest and well-deserved husband. Of course, no one knew then that one of the seven, the youngest son of Jan and Maria, was to win deathless fame, or that might have been carved on the slab too, even if something else had to be omitted. But Maria need not have added that last clause, stating who it was that placed the tablet as it stands, we should all have known that it was she who dictated the inscription. Epitaphs are proverbially untruthful. Hence arose the saying, he lies like an epitaph. The woman who cannot evolve a good lie in defense of the man she loves is unworthy of the name of wife. The lie is the weapon of defense that kind providence provides for the protection of the oppressed. Women are great liars, said Mahomet. Allah, in his wisdom, made them so. Hail Maria Rubens. Turn to dust these three hundred years. What star do you now inhabit? Or does your avatar live somewhere here in the world? At the thought of your unselfish loyalty and precious fibbing, an army of valiant, ghostly knights will arise from their graves, and rusty swords leap from their scabbards, if aught but good be said against thee. Ho, ho, and wasn't your husband really guilty, and didn't you know it all the time? I'll fling my glove full in the face of any man who dare ask you such a question. Beloved and loving wife of six and twenty years, and mother of seven, looking the world squarely in the eye, and telling a large and beautiful untruth, carving it in marble to protect her husband's name. I kiss my hand to you. 
In the doorpost of a queer little stone house in Cologne is carved an inscription to the effect that Peter Paul Rubens was born there on June 29th, 1577. It is probably true that the parents of Rubens lived there, but Peter Paul was born at Siegen, under the shadow of a prison from which his father was paroled. After a few years, the discipline relaxed, for there were new prisoners coming along, and Maria and Jan were given permission to move to Cologne. Peter Paul was ten years of age when his father died. The next year, the widow moved with her little brood back to Antwerp, back to the city from which her husband had been exiled just twenty years before. Five years previous, the Prince of Orange, who had exiled her husband, was himself sent on a journey via the dagger of an assassin. As the chief enemy of Jan Rubens was dead, it was the hope of the widow to recover their property that had been confiscated. Maria Rubens was a good Catholic, and she succeeded in making the authorities believe that her husband had been too. But the home that royalty had confiscated was returned to her. The mother of Peter Paul loved the dim twilight mysteries of the church and accepted every dogma and edict as the literal word of God. It is easier and certainly safer to leave such matters to the specialists. She was a born diplomat. She recognized the power of the church and knew that to win one must go with the current, not against it. To have doubts when the church is willing to bear the whole burden she thought very foolish. Had she been a man, she would have been a leader among the Jesuits. The folly of opposition had been shown her most vividly in her husband's career. What could he not have been, had he been wise and patient, and tamed the tide at its flood? And this was the spirit that she inculcated in the minds of her children. Little Peter Paul was a handsome lad, handsome as his father with big, dark brown eyes and clustering curls. He was bright, intelligent, and blessed with a cheerful, obliging disposition. He came into the world a welcome child, carrying the beauty of the morning in his face and form and spirit. No wonder is it that the Countess de la Lange desired the boy for a page as soon as she saw him. His mother embraced the opportunity to let her favorite child see court life, and so, at the early age of twelve, at a plunge, he began that career in polite diplomacy that was to continue for half a century. The Countess called herself his other mother and lavished upon him all the attention that a childless woman had to bestow. The mornings were sacred to his lessons, which were looked after by a Jesuit priest, and in the afternoon, Another priest came to give the ladies lessons in the languages, and at these circles young Peter Paul was always present as one of the class. Indeed, the earliest accomplishment of Peter Paul was his polyglot ability. When he arrived at Antwerp, a mere child, he spoke German, Flemish, and French. Such a favorite did little Peter Paul become with his other mother and her ladies of the court, that his sure enough mother grew a bit jealous and feared they would make a hothouse plant of her boy, and so she took him away. The question was, for what profession should he be educated? 
that he should serve the church and state was already a settled fact in the mother's mind. To get on in the world, you must cultivate and wisely serve those who are in power, that is, those who have power to bestow. Priests were plentiful as blackberries, and politicians were on every corner, and many of the priests and office-seekers had no special talent to recommend them. They were simply time-servers. Maria knew this. To get on, you must have several talents, otherwise people will tire of you. In Cologne, Maria Robins had met returned pilgrims from Rome, and they had told her of the Trinity of Giants. Michelangelo, Raphael, and Leonardo, and how these men had been the peers of prince and pope, because they had the ability to execute marvelous works of beauty. This extraordinary talent called attention to themselves. So they were summoned out of the crowd and became the companions and friends of the greatest names of their time. And then, how better can one glorify his maker than by covering the sacred walls of temples with rich ornament. The boy entered into the project, and the mother's ambition that he should retrieve his father's fortune fired his heart. Thus does the failure in life of a parent often gives incentive to the genius of a son. Tobias Verhacht was the man who taught Rubens the elements of drawing and inculcated in him that love of nature which was to be his lifelong heritage. The word landscape is Flemish, and it was the Dutch who carried the term and the art into England. Verhaagt was among the very first of landscape painters. He was a specialist. He could draw trees and clouds and a winding river, but could not portray faces. And so he used to call in a worthy portrait painter by the name of Frank to insist him whenever he had a canvas on the easel that demanded the human form. Then, when Frank wanted background and perspective, Verhacht would go over with a brush and a few pots of paint and help him out. At fifteen, the keen, intuitive mind of Rubens had fathomed the talents of those two worthies, Verhacht and Frank. His mind was essentially feminine. He absorbed ideas in the mass. Soon he prided himself on being able to paint alone as good a picture as the two collaborators could together. Yet he was too wise to affront them by the boast. The bent of his talent, he thought, was toward historical painting. And more than this, he knew that only epic art would open the churches for a painter. And so he next became a pupil under Adam van Noort. This man was a rugged old character who worked out things in his own way and pushed the standard of painting full ten points to the front. His work shows a marked advance over that of his contemporaries and over the race of painters that preceded him. Every great artist is the lingering representative of an age that is dead, or else he is the prophet and forerunner of a golden age to come. When I visited the church of Saint-Jacques in Antwerp, where Rubens lies buried. The good old priest who acted as guide called my attention to a picture by Van Noort, showing Peter finding the money in the mouth of the fish. A close study of that picture will reveal to you the germ of the Rubens touch, said the priest, and he was surely right. Its boldness of drawing, 
the strong bright colors and the dexterity in handling all. Say, Rubens. Rubens built it on the work of Van Noort. Twenty years after Rubens had left the studio of Van Noort, he paid tribute to his old master by saying, Had Van Noort visited Italy and caught the spirit of the classicist, his name would stand first among Flemish artists. Rubens worked four years with Van Noort and then entered the studio of Otto van Veen. This man was not a better painter than Van Noort, but he occupied a much higher social position, and Peter Paul was intent on advancing his skirmish line. He never lost ground. Van Veen was court painter and on friendly terms with the Archduke Albert and Isabella, his wife, daughter of Philip II, King of Spain. Van Veen took very few pupils, only those who had the ability to aid him in completing his designs. To have worked with this master was an introduction at once into the charmed circle of royalty. Rubens was in no haste to branch out on his own account. He was quite content to know that he was gaining ground, making head upon the whole. He won the confidence of Van Veen at once by his skill, his cheerful presence, and ability to further the interests of his master and patrons. In 1599, when Rubens was 22, he was enrolled as a free master of the Guild of St. Luke on the nomination of Van Veen, who also about this time introduced the young artist to Albert and Isabella. But the best service that Van Veen did for Rubens was in taking him into his home and giving him free access to the finest collection of Italian art in the Netherlands. These things filled the heart of Rubens with a desire to visit Italy and there to dive deeply into the art spirit of that land from which all our art has sprung. To go abroad then and gain access to the art treasures of the world was not a mere matter of asking for a passport, handing out a visiting card, and paying your way. Young men who wished to go abroad to study were required to pass a stiff examination. If it was believed that they could not represent their own country with honor, their passports were withheld, and to travel without a passport was to run the risk of being arrested as an absconder. But Rubin's place in society was already secure. Instead of applying for his passports personally and undergoing the usual catechization, his desires were explained to Van Veen, and all technicalities were waived, as they always are when you strike the right man. Not only were the passports forthcoming, but Albert and Isabella wrote a personal note to Fecusa Gonzaga, the Duke of Mantua, commending the young painter to the Duke's good offices. Van Veen further explained to Rubens that to know the Duke of Mantua might mean either humiliation or crowning success. To attain the latter through the Duke of Mantua, it was necessary to make a good impression on Annabelle Chiepo, the Duke's minister of state. Chiepo had the keeping of the ducal conscience as well as the key to the strong box. The Duke of Mantua was one of those strange, loaded dice that fate occasionally flings upon this checkerboard of time. One of those characters whose feverish faculties border on madness, 
yet who do the world great good by breaking up its balances, preventing social ankylosis, and eventually forcing upon mankind a new deal. But in the train of these vagrant stars, famine and pestilence follow. The Duke of Mantua was brother in spirit to the man who made Versailles, and making Versailles undid France. Versailles is a dream, no language that the most enthusiastic lovers of the beautiful may utter, can exaggerate the wonders of those acres of palaces and miles of gardens. The magnificence of the place makes the ready writer put up his pencil and go away whipped, subdued and crestfallen, to think that here are creations that no one pen can even catalog. Louis the Grand, we are told, had 36,000 men and 6,000 horses at work here at one time. No wonder Madame de Maintenon was oppressed by the treasures that were beyond the capacity of man to contemplate, and so often the woods was built that lover's retreat, the Trianon. And out there today, hidden in the forest, we behold the second Trianon, built by Marie Antoinette, and we also see those straw-thatched huts where the ladies of her court played at peasant life. Louis the Fourteenth built it so well that he discouraged his successor from doing anything but play keep house, and so extensively that France was rent in twain, and so mightily that even Napoleon Bonaparte was staggered at the thought of maintaining Versailles. If it's too much for any man to enjoy, I give it up, said the little man, perplexed, and ordered every door locked and every window tightly shuttered. Then he placed a thousand men to guard the place and went about his business. But today, Versailles belongs to the people of France. More, it belongs to the people of Earth. All is free, and you may carry away all the beauty of the place that your soul can absorb. Now, who shall say that Louis the Fourteenth has not enriched the world? The Duke of Mantua was sumptuous in his tastes, liberal, chivalrous, voluptuous, extravagant. At the same time, he had a cultivated mind, an eye for proportion, and an ear for harmony. He was even pious at times, and like all debauchees, had periods of asceticism. He was much given to gallantry, and his pension list of beautiful women was not small. He was a poet and wrote some very good sonnets. He was a composer who sang from his own compositions after the wine had gone round. He was an orator who committed to memory and made his own the speeches that his secretary wrote. He traveled much and in great state with a retinue of servants, armed guards, outriders, and guides. Wherever he went, he summoned the local poet or painter or musician and made a speech to him, showing that he was familiar with his work by humming a tune or quoting a stanza. Then he put a chain of gold around the poor embarrassed fellow's neck and a purse in his hands, and the people cheered. When he visited a town, cavalcades met him afar out, and as he approached, little girls in white and boys dressed in velvet ran before and strewed flowers in front of his carriage. Oh, the Duke of Mantua was a great man. In his retinue was a troop of comedians, a court fool, two dwarfs for luck, 
seven cooks, three alchemists, and an astrologer. Like the old woman who lived in the shoe, he had so many children he didn't know what to do. One of his sons married a princess of the House of Saxony. Another son was a cardinal, and a daughter married into the House of Lorraine. He had alliances and close relations with every reigning family of Europe. The sister of his wife, Marie de Medici, became king of France, as Talleyrand avers, and had a mad, glad, sad, bad, jolly time of it. Wherever the Duke of Mantua went, there too went Annabel Chiepo, the minister of state. This man had a calm eye, a quiet pulse, and could locate any man or woman in his numerous retinue at any hour of the day or night. He was a diplomat, a soldier, and a financier. You could not reach the Duke until you had got past Chiepo. And the Duke of Mantua had much common sense, for in spite of envy and calumny and threat, he never lost faith in Annabel Chiepo. No success in life is possible without a capable first mate. Chiepo was king of first mates. He was subtle as Richelieu and as wise as Wolsey. End of section five.